Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have mercy with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Good morning, everyone. Right as that video ended, something gigantic flew into my eye, which is awesome. <laughs> Perfect timing. So, all right. Well, hey, we're back. We're here for week three of our timeless teachings, uh, going through four parables uh, through this month. We're in the third one. And uh, today, spoiler alert, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about forgiveness uh, and just what does it look like? Because, uh, and here's what I know already, having done this at eight o'clock, uh, this is, this is a tough topic. Uh, it'll be our third tough topic in a row. We talked about judgment week one. We talked about hell last week. We're diving into forgiveness. But these are critical topics. They're so important for us. And we end up having so many different places where this affects us. So uh, what I want to do today is I want to spend a little bit of time. I want to talk about forgiveness. I want to I talk about what's kind of the opposite of forgiveness and how it can kind of affect us. And then I want to spend a lot of time talking about some application of kind of what it looks like. And so to, to kind of look at it, uh, the, again, the, the videos have been so helpful because they're kind of reading through the text and telling the story. I, I went this week and just did some research. What, is, what does it mean? What, how is uh, forgiveness defined? It says the action or process of forgiving or being forgiven, which is completely not helpful. And so I decided maybe we should go a little deeper because that doesn't do any good for me at all. And so uh, I went to greatergood.berkeley.edu. Let's see what Berkeley has to say about forgiveness. It says this, it says, psychologists generally define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance towards a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness. I mean, not bad for Berkeley. I thought that was pretty good. That's, uh, that's kind of a solid definition. Uh, the Bible's gonna pretty much lay out something very similar today. It sounds really easy, but for some reason or another, none of you are ready to go home right now just because I've explained what it is. As a matter of fact, though simple in definition, it is quite complex in functionality, isn't it? 
When we sit down and we deal with all of the different places where we've been wounded, uh, injustice is best described for me in my own life uh, as places where somebody else's sin has been dumped onto your plate. So the way that somebody else is, is broken uh, gets dumped into your life and then you gotta kinda figure out what to do with it. Uh, I, I know that this is tough, so what I want you to hear today is I'm prepared to share some of my own journey through forgiveness at different places in my life. I've got some stories that I think lay out a pretty uh, powerful uh, example or examples of what it looks like to forgive, but I want you to hear something loud and clear. This is not easy. Uh, this is kind of hard Christianity. This is not just the worship service that makes you feel good. This is where the rubber really meets the road. And I just want you to know nothing that I'm gonna say today do I say flippantly. I don't say any of this with a heart that says, just do it, it's easy. Uh, this is painful, challenging, and yet deeply Christ-like work that we're being called to in our lives. And so before we do anything else, let's just ask the Lord to join us in a sweet and special way. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that this is a story you taught. When you were asked, after Peter sits down and says, how many times should we forgive? You respond with this amazing parable where you just respond to that question with, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. You tell us this story when we're asked how many times we should forgive or how big should our forgiveness be? And yet, Lord, all of us have challenging roads when it comes to forgiveness. It, we, we don't know how to sort out our wounds. We don't know what to do with the person or people on the other side of those wounds. And so, Lord, we just ask today that you would really open our hearts to something maybe entirely new than the way that we've thought about these wounds in the past. We are asking for a deep and powerful transaction that you would show us freedom that we didn't even know existed. And we just pray that in your precious name. Amen. All right, church, so each week, uh, as we've gone through these parables, for the first two weeks, we've actually had something kind of cool. We, we had the parable, and then we had Jesus who pulled kind of all of the disciples aside and was like, hey, here's what it means. Uh, we don't have that this week. What we have is 2,000 years of church history and biblical interpretation to kind of lean on, but uh, we've each week kind of taken what we're hearing in 2021, and we're recontextualizing it back to what the first century audience would have heard. So let's take the original audience and understand what they would have understood so that we can kind of reapply it to our lives today. So in this case, the setting is a king's court. And what the king is dealing with is his doulos, or his servants. Doulos was a Greek word for an indebted servant, somebody who owed the king a great debt, and now all of those servants are being called into the king's presence to settle their debts. This is not a made-up scenario. In the first century, it was plausible that with slavery, in some cases, uh, this was the cultural process for working off debts. It made credit card debt a lot less attractive, okay? Probably wouldn't have gone out and done that remodel of the master bath if you knew that uh, whoever you owed money to could sell your wife and your kids if you didn't pay it off in time. Makes that a little bit less of a desirable process. Uh, each week, we've talked about the components, kind of the what's what. Same thing this week. We don't have seven of them or eight of them like we did last week. We have three. In this case, because we're gonna, we're gonna lay this metaphor back out. Remember, Jesus is taking an earthly reality and talking to us about a kingdom reality. So in this case, the king is representative of God or Christ, the ultimate judge. We talked last week about the ultimate judge being Christ. The son and the son alone is the one who will judge salvation. 
at some point and will reconcile the righteous and the unrighteous. Who are the servants? Us. It's us here, down here on the earthly kingdom, trying to figure out what we're doing with our lives and dealing not just with the king, but also with each other. And what is debt representing in this case? Debt is rep representing sin or offenses. In fact, the Greek word that was used for debt in this particular passage was often used as a metaphor for sin in the first century. So Jesus is pressing in and making it super clear. Here's the deal. And remember, Peter kicks this whole thing off by going, how many times should we forgive? And it's the seven times seven, 70 times seven, that whole thing. Jesus responds into this by going, here's what your forgiveness should look like. And here's what it shouldn't look like. So anytime if you're a pastor and you get to preach the unmerciful servant uh, parable, one of the things that you get to do, which you don't get to do very often, is you get to use a calculator to prepare for a sermon, which I'd never done before, so this is a completely new experience. But let's talk about what did servant one owe the king, okay? This is the one who comes to the king, he's called before him, and he owes him 10,000 talents. I don't know about you guys, anybody paying for Starbucks with talents these days? We have no idea what this means, okay? So here's what a talent was. It was a measurement, and the measurement was this. It was the largest monetary standard that they had because the measurement was representative of what amount of weight a soldier could carry on his back, okay? So what historians estimate was that that was 75 to 100 pounds. And within one talent was 6,000 denarii, okay? Now that's gonna be important because the second servant owed the first one 100 denarii. And a denarius, singular, plural, was the average daily wage for a worker back then, okay? Stick with me, because all these details are gonna come together in a brilliant flurry of preaching in just a second. So stick with me here, all right? <laughs> so that's what he owes. Give me another click. One t the 10,000 talents that were owed, we're gonna use that 75, uh, 75 pounds. So conservative number here. What this was being measured in was gold, all right? So the 10,000 talents times that 75 pounds that could be carried on that soldier's back means that servant one would have owed the king 750,000 pounds of gold. Can you imagine what that pile would look like? Okay, I did some research. Again, not something I've ever done for a sermon, but jumped on the metal markets just to see what was cooking. They're sending me an email a day now, which was fun. Gold price today, this is as of Tuesday, $1,809 per ounce. So what's the math? One more click. Here's the math, gang. $1,809 for an ounce of gold, 16 ounces in a pound, 75 pounds in one talent, 10,000 talents owed, comes to the grand total of $21,708,000,000 that servant number one owes to the king. It was an astronomical debt. Here's one more layer that makes this even cooler. Remember that we said 6,000 denarii makes up a talent, which means if you take the 10,000 talents by that 6,000, that is one day's wage as a denarius. This person owes, servant one, 60 million denarii or 60 million days of labor. For those of you who are figuring out where this is going, 365 days in a year, 164,384 years worth of labor that would have been owned by servant one to the king. The reality is that this guy owed lifetimes, okay? I don't know a lot of people who are living 164,000 years anymore. Anybody know anybody? 
This is a crazy amount of time. He was effectively in a death sentence. He would spend the rest of his life as a servant. He owed an eternity. Just to give you a biblical reference, right? Because again, you're like, I don't know, did 10,000 talents get thrown around a lot? David and the leaders of Israel gathered three to 5,000 talents of gold and seven to 10,000 talents of silver to build the temple. One of the most unbelievable, over-the-top, ancient structures we've ever heard of that had so much gold in it that when people walked in, they were overwhelmed by what was built there is still on the high end of what's estimated by historians, only gathered 5,000, exactly half the amount of gold that this guy owed. And Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, said that a total of 600 talents were collected in taxes from Judea and Samaria in 4 BC. Two provinces didn't even gather a tenth of what was owed by this guy. Here's what the commentaries had to say, and this is what Jesus is doing. No reader could conceive of such an amount as in this parable, as Jesus' hearers would simply have thought of an impossibly large debt. Like a child saying, and it said this in my academic commentary, a million gazillions. right? It's like when kids are like, how much money do you have? A million gazillions. It's like, well, that's not real, right? And that's exactly what Jesus hears, what are her 10,000 talents? What do you care? We're, that type of money doesn't even exist. Like David didn't even gather that, that much gold for the temple. Like what could this guy possibly have done? How big a debt was this? And yet in the face of that, what does the king do? Because remember, this whole parable is being laid out to Jesus saying, here's what the kingdom's like. They're looking at an earthly reality and they're, they're being asked, well, how should we forgive here on earth? And Jesus goes, let me tell you what the kingdom's like. Let me tell you about a kingdom where the king is so amazing that when this unbelievable debt is owed, here's how the king responds. The king forgives the man from a death sentence, an assured place where he is now being told, just to pay your debt off, I'm going to take your lives and the lives of your wives and children and sell you into what is probably a much less attractive slavery scenario because that's how much you owe. And when he simply pleads, when he simply looks at the king and says, please have mercy on me, what's the kingdom like? Well, it sounds a lot like what we know as a conversion experience. When someone repents and pleads for mercy with God, how does God respond in the kingdom? That king is so good that he wipes the debt clean. And what Jesus is saying here is going, listen, Listen to what this looks like. So after you've been given a debt, a forgiven a debt that big, what do you do? What's the best thing you could do after you've been forgiven of $21.7 billion? Go find your buddy, choke him out and have him thrown in jail. That seems like the no-brainer response. So let's talk about what did the second servant owe? The second servant owed the first one 100 denarii. 100 denarii, which works out, I'm not gonna mess around with the math, but works out to about 36 grand. Even more important, remember, each, denar each denarius is one day's labor. He owed 100 days of labor. It's less than a third of a year. The other guy owed 164,000 plus years. There is an absolute crazy disparity of what's going on. In fact, it's a differential of over 600,000 times what the servant owed to the king, what the servant had been forgiven of. It is an absolutely radical radical move. And yet what Jesus is laying out, can you guys already feel this coming? What Jesus is laying out is, listen guys, when you're here on earth as servants together, the way that I want you to think about each other is with this in mind. 
When you deal with each other, I want you to remember that you have been forgiven of an impossibly large debt by the precious blood of Christ. Jesus knows what's coming. He's talking about a kingdom reality. And he's going, listen, this is the way you have to act because this is the way that you have been purchased. You've been purchased at far too precious a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And what he's inviting us into is a reality. Remember, the end of this passage deals with this, and this is what we're gonna talk about today by way of forgiveness. The very last verse says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What I wanna talk about today is heart work. I wanna talk about what that vertical process of us going to God really looks like. Because what it says here is when the king finds out the way that one servant who had been forgiven of much deals with another servant, he literally looks at him and says, wicked servant. What Jesus is laying out here is this process of the fact that as Christians, once we give our lives to Christ, there is a new expectation of how we deal with others. Take a look at this quote. It's by Craig Blomberg. It says this, and this is what I believe Christ is calling us to in this passage. It's the unlimited revenge of primitive man having given place to the unlimited forgiveness of Christians. It's the world being so desperately in need of examples of Christians not just talking about Jesus, but radically and powerfully acting like him. So when we talk about this today, as we apply this, this difficult and challenging uh, teaching to the most tender spots in our heart, places where we've been wounded, I think we have to learn what radical biblical forgiveness looks like. And I know that for some of us, we will be in spots where we go, I'm still pretty stuck and I'm not sure I can do that. And I want you to know your church loves you and we're with you no matter where you are in this road. But in order to truly talk about forgiveness, just to continue to lay a foundation and to help quell some of those difficult spots in our heart, I wanna start by talking about what forgiveness isn't. Here is what forgiveness is not, first line. We need to feel it. So many times I talk to people and they say this, I, I just can't forgive that person because I just, I, honestly, like my heart, I just don't feel like forgiving them. I just, the, my heart's not there. Remember that our minds are transformed by the renewing of our heart. And there's something that we can do to step in. Corey Tenboom has an unbelievable testimony around forgiveness. Her entire ministry was shaped uh, around this topic of forgiveness. This is what she has to say. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. What Corey Tenboom is talking about, a woman who sat in the concentration camps of World War II and watched her sister killed by officers in those camps who sat there and had that man, when she tells her testimony, walk down to the front of the room, hold out his hand and say, will you forgive me? And what does her testimony say? Those of you who have read it, I didn't feel like it. What I can do, Lord, as she's praying in the midst of this high stakes moment, she says, Lord, what I can do is put my hand out. Will you supply the feeling? What Corey Tenboom did was say, listen, this is an act of the will. This is something that God has called me to. And she knew all too well what the effects of not forgiving would be. And so in that moment, she reaches out her hand and what she describes is when his hand met hers, she felt something warm and unbelievable surge through her body as she forgave this man 
who had killed her sister. We don't always get to feel like it first. Sometimes we do. But in many cases, in the most difficult cases, we don't always get to feel like it first. What's the second thing that forgiveness is not? It's saying that what the other person did was right. That's not what it is. You see, the reality is that our forgiveness does not condone the offensive behavior. When we forgive someone, what we're doing is we are acting in what the Bible is asking us to do. And I wanna define this activity of forgiveness real clearly here in just a minute. But what it's not is sitting there and saying, you deeply wounded me and I forgive you. Therefore, this is now a passageway for you to continue to wound me. Boundaries are critical when it comes to what forgiveness isn't. It's not leaving that open. It's simply saying, because I have been forgiven of much, I am willing to do something on behalf of myself and of you. Next, it doesn't say that the consequences of sin go away. There's times where people wound us, and guess what? There's legal consequences because of what they did relational, emotional consequences of what they did. We're gonna talk here in just a second. Matter of fact, give me another click. It's not that we're required to forget. Forgive and forget's not a thing. The consequences don't go away and we often don't forget. But what we're doing in the midst of that moment is sitting back and going, listen, with the consequences still in play, I'm willing to sit back and to do something here. I'm willing to forgive you, to release a debt. And we'll talk about that in a second. I got guys on my staff I had a guy this last week, came up and told me his story. We sat there and we talked a little bit about what was going on. Came up and told me his story. And I'd heard this before, but I totally was walked back through it in detail. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, I don't know if we talked about this, but my dad was murdered. And I went, I, I do remember that. And he walked me through the story. That man got to sit in the courtroom with the people who had killed his father. And after doing work, he got to sit there and he got to release that debt. He got to do something and he said, when the forgiveness was engaged in after the process that the Lord walked him through, he's never felt anything like it. There was a new level of something going on in his heart. There was a freedom. The next thing that it says is this, it's, it's, it's not that trust is automatically restored. Again, it's not forgive and forget. Someone wounds you, you may forgive them and yet you may be in a spot where you go, we're gonna have some boundaries that are in place while trust is being re-earned. I've heard radically manipulative Christians sit back before and go, some horrific wound was levied, and then they're like, well, why don't you trust me? Be because I'm still working through rebuilding trust. I forgive you, but it doesn't mean that we're necessarily gonna go right back to the close proximity of where you were before. Because the other reality is this, that reconciliation won't always happen. Two people have to be willing to reconcile. I wrote this down this morning because it was on my heart, but it's Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, and so far as it depends on you. It takes two people to reconcile. There are times where the other person is unwilling to reconcile. They don't wanna reconcile. They don't think they did anything wrong. Is our living at peace going to depend on them knowing what they did? No, it can't. Now that person's holding you hostage. Do we serve a God who's gonna allow us to be held hostage by somebody else who was wounded? No, we do not. We serve a God who is far better than that. And what we wanna talk about today is how do we get free instead of living a life that is constantly stuck 
well, unless me and this person are best friends again, that might not happen. They may not want to be in relationship anymore. You may have boundaries that say, uh, we're not actually gonna be able to move back in that close, and that doesn't mean you don't forgive them, it just means we have a boundary. Boundaries are okay, they're actually quite healthy. But we gotta talk about what forgiveness really is. So let's transition into defining this activity a little better than Berkeley did, and let's give it some actual teeth. The reality is, when something happens and it wounds us, because we serve a just God, a debt is owed. I was wounded, there's now a debt here. In the midst of somebody dumping their sin into my life, there's now this debt. What do I do with the debt, Rustin? I gotta figure out what to do with this thing that I've been carrying. Let's talk about it. This is the best I can do for what true forgiveness looks like. It's the definition I use for myself, okay? True forgiveness is us releasing the debt to God because we were never designed to carry that kind of weight. We were never designed to carry that kind of weight. It's too heavy, it eats at us, it's exhausting. The reality is, when we stand in these moments, and this is why, and I'll shape this for the rest of our time together today, just applying, applying, applying. When we sit there and something is done to us and it wounds us, we now have the opportunity to do something with it. We can either immediately start to work with God to go, I know what's coming, or we can take this burden on and instead of giving the debt to God because he says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will be just, we can sit back and say, I'm not sure I trust you with that, Lord. I'm gonna take this debt that's owed and I'm gonna go out into the world and I'm going to exact justice. I'm going to make sure this person is, is going to be dealt with appropriately based on what I think they owe, not based on what you. All we're doing in those moments is saying, God, I don't think you'll do a good job. I don't think you'll take care of this appropriately. The reality is that burden we were never meant to carry. <laughs> So many times we sit back in our lives and what happens? We feel so stuck. And then we start to respond in all these crazy ways and then we even blame our own responses on the person who wounded us. And that's what the enemy loves to do. He loves to get us stuck and keep us stuck. But if we're willing to truly trust the Lord, we can move into some really powerful places. Take a look at Isaiah 30, 18. When it comes to us dealing with the Lord, we have to be willing to wait on him. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait on him. In that moment where we sit back and go, and here's the deal. When I talk to people who have dealt with radical, radical injustices, I've dealt with my own, I'll share bits and pieces of my own story today. There's this point where they come to the place where what they've been carrying around is just so heavy that they just finally go, I just don't wanna live like this anymore. I just don't wanna do this. So they finally go, I'm willing to do anything, even forgive this person to be free of the effects. Because the reality is, we either trust God with that debt that is owed or we try to exact the debt ourselves. When we try to exact the debt ourselves, here's what happens. We start to create something we create a stronghold. You guys have heard that verse. Don't let the uh, sun go down in your anger. Don't give the enemy a place, a foothold, or an opportunity. That word is stronghold. It's a stronghold. Don't give the enemy a stronghold, a place, or an opportunity. The Greek word for that is the Greek word topos. 
It's where we get our English word topography from. It is describing don't give the enemy a place in your life. Don't let him do that. Don't even give him an opportunity because what the enemy does with an opportunity is this. He steps in and he goes, ooh, that person really hurt you. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna engage in a stronghold of unforgiveness. Thank you for giving me a place, a topos in your life. I'm gonna do something. And here's what he does. The enemy comes in and he sets up the machine of unforgiveness. And that stronghold, that machine, it's like us setting up a generator right here on stage. Somebody wounds us and we go, well, <clears throat> there it is. I'm gonna exact the debt. I'm gonna go out and make sure that this is just and this is fair based on what I think should happen. So now I got this generator here, but I gotta turn it on. So I unscrew the cap. That thing needs fuel. You know what the stronghold of unforgiveness absolutely is fueled by every day? It's fueled by our anger. Put a little bit of that in there. Give it some resentment, some hatred, a little bit of bitterness, gossip. I'm gonna make sure this thing's running for a while. By the way, has anybody ever heard any of these things in the fruit of the spirit? I missed it when it said gossip was part of the deal. But have we ever done this? Have we ever gone out to coffee with somebody and gone, oh, you're not gonna believe it. Wait till you hear what so-and-so did to me. And what do they do? They're like, oh, okay. But if you've ever had a really deep wound that goes on for years and years and years, do you ever find that all of a sudden people kind of don't want to hear the story as much? It's not because the story wasn't real. It's not because the story didn't matter. It's not because it wasn't fair. It's because this person is sitting back and they're hearing the same story. They're hearing you still being stuck time after time. And they're watching your stronghold of unforgiveness start to breed new strongholds. The anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the gossip, the fear, the hatred. The stronghold of unforgiveness starts to create other strongholds that support it. Can you think of another entity that starts with one, but then starts to create other things to support it? Cancer. Cancer does that. It starts with just a few cells, and by the time it's done, it's gone metastatic through the entire body, and unforgiveness will go metastatic. It will start to take over our lives. We come to these places where we don't even realize it. You might be realizing it now. I've realized it in my own life many times. You wanna talk about a not-so-fun week? Try to preach on unforgiveness and then watch the Lord go, what about this guy, what about this guy, what about this guy? I'm like, why didn't I just preach on blessing? I could have been reminded about that. I've literally been doing this all week as the Lord's going, do you, do you really? What about this guy? You, you wanna do some work around him? Yeah, I do. Because what I realize is unforgiveness, I've still got fear, bitterness, hatred, all these things that we gotta work through because the generator has to stay on because as long as the generator stays on and I'm exacting justice, it keeps me safe. And the enemy wants me to stay safe, but he wants me to stay safe and stuck because I'm my own protector. I am my own justice. I'm not waiting on the Lord. The other thing that the little mechanism of unforgiveness this little machine does is it chains you to the other person. It doesn't free you from them. In so many cases, what happens is we get into these situations with people who've wounded us and we kind of go, oh, I don't ever want to see them again. I don't ever want to think about them again. And again, the enemy's crafty. He wants you to be in control, perceivably, but he also wants you stuck. So what happens? Let's just say that this podium right here is Jeff. And Jeff has wounded me. 
And so what unforgiveness does is unforgiveness doesn't free me from Jeff. Unforgiveness actually has a chain to it that I grab hold of. It's actually not chained to me. I'm willingly holding on to this chain. And what happens is somebody walks up and goes, hey, did you hear about what happened to Jeff? And it jerks at me. And I go, no, what happened to Jeff? Oh, did you hear he just got a rad new promotion? Ugh. They're buying a new house? Ugh. His kids got into Stanford? Ugh. His handicap's down to a two? This guy's the worst. <laughs> it just keeps hitting me. Honestly, guys, it gets to the point where, let's say I'm mad at Jeff Thompson. Somebody goes, hey, did you hear about Jeff Sanders? Oh, I just, I, you know what? I don't even like that name anymore. <laughs> Think about the people who've hurt you. When you hear their name, it reminds you of the person who hurt you. You've lost a name. <laughs> that's how sadistic, that's how demonic the enemy is. He came to steal, to kill, destroy. He's not on your team. And he wants to use strongholds to keep us stuck. He wants to keep victim mentalities in place. He does not want us to function in kingdom forgiveness. He wants us chained to people that we spend the rest of our lives engaging in hatred with. He does not want free Christians. He does not want the world to see primitive, broken, angry people giving way to the unlimited forgiveness of what Christians have been called to. The reality of unforgiveness is, it's like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's sitting back, and in many cases, it's like us sitting back and hoping the other person dies. So here's my story. I've alluded to this with you guys before, but I'll give you as much detail as you need. Five years old, I was molested, and uh, I was molested by a 16-year-old boy at the time, okay? It was in a church. I didn't talk about it till I was 23. Now, here's the reality. In the grand scheme, what I had to do is I had to sit down and I had to work through all those details. I had to sit down and I had to, at one point, either continue to live in this ongoing confusion and reality of I need to make this right, or I had to finally sit down and release the debt in my heart, who does heart work, church? Everybody on the count of three say God. One, two, three, God. We're asked in this passage to do the forgiving in our heart. I had to go through a process where I forgave the boy who did that. I had to forgive the circumstance. I had to, at one point, actually come to the point where I had to release the right to understand why it happened. I had to do the whole, does a good God allow this to happen? I had to come to the point where I actually trusted the Lord with the circumstances. And you know what the most powerful moments in my life are now? And my wife would tell you, this is not an easy road for me. I'm still picking this thing apart because the event itself wasn't as traumatic as the next 18 years that the enemy used to kick all sorts of stuff on in a six-year-old kid <laughs> who didn't know what to do with it. And I had to sit back and go, Lord, I don't understand. But I trust you. I trust you to be good. I trust you to take my mess and turn it into a masterpiece. You know what I have the ability to do today? I have the ability to sit with people who have experienced sexual abuse. And I can say something that not everybody can say. 
I can sit back and say, God is particularly good to his kids when they pursue freedom in this area. I can tell you that because he's continuing to work in my life. And he turns a mess into a masterpiece. R.T. Kendall's got a really great quote. This is what he says about forgiveness. He says the person who gains the most from forgiveness is the one who does the forgiving. I don't even know this guy anymore. And details surrounding it don't even matter. Don't, don't worry, it's all been dealt with, okay? But what I need you to know as a church is that me sitting back and hating this guy is not doing me any good. It's not doing him any good. The consequences have all taken place. We got all that figured out. But here's the reality, church. Me sitting back and hating him is like me drinking poison and going, I hope he dies, I hope he dies, I hope he dies. It's not affecting him. And at the end of the day, what I had to get to was I don't wanna live like this anymore. I wanna be free of any confusion, of any twistedness, of anything in me. I've gotta be willing to do the work with the Lord to go, hey, me and you gotta get right on this or there can never be any level of horizontal experience that is free because I just turn the machine on every day and for me, a lot of it was like even the, the, the victimization of the whole thing to get free of some of that and to get back to the place where the Lord starts restoring me away from the victimhood and into the freedom that I needed to live in. The Lord goes, I will restore you and move you into new places. I will cause your life to look peaceful again where you believe it will not. Church, the reality in so many of these cases is this. We don't know totally what it looks like because we're kind of happy being stuck. It keeps us safe. I found a story months ago and I submitted it to the worship and production team and said, I know I'm gonna be preaching on forgiveness. I think I sent him this in like April or May. I said, I know I'm gonna be preaching on this and I wanna show this video. Let's figure out how to make that happen. The video is... Uh, probably one of the more powerful forgiveness stories I've ever seen. You guys probably remember this story. Uh, it was a year plus ago, but an off-duty female police officer came home after having a really big night out. She'd had a lot of fun. And she came home, and because she was a little disoriented, she walked into the wrong apartment. It wasn't hers. When she walked into the wrong apartment, the person whose apartment it was, was there because she thought it was her house, she thought it was an intruder, she drew her weapon, and she killed the man. Complete injustice. What you're about to watch is what took place when the man who was shot's brother took the stand to address the woman who walked into the wrong apartment and killed her brother. Take a look. For myself, I, I forgive you and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but 
I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. That's an unbelievable man of God. That is somebody sitting back and not just talking about Jesus, but being Jesus in the moment. That is what it looks like in the midst of, guys, we all know the cultural nonsense that's going on around this and the insane cultural pressure because of the circumstances. And instead, what this guy did was to sit down and to say, I'm not getting caught up in any of that. He blew right by all of that. And he sat back and he did something unbelievable. He sat there in that moment and he preached the gospel to the woman who'd killed his brother. He sat back and he looked across the room. He blew by everything that the world would say about it. And he just acted like Jesus in a way that so many of us go, that is awe-inspiring. He sat back and he looked at this scenario and he showed the world what it means for the unlimited revenge of primitive man to give place to the unlimited forgiveness of Christians. What the world is waiting for What the world is in desperate need of right now is for men and women just like that to rise up and to not just talk about Jesus, but to act like him. We talked last week about being transparent in our trials and our sufferings, in our difficult places to show the world what it looks like. That's what it looks like for this man, not just to grieve because he's broken about the loss of his brother, but in the midst of his brother not coming back, He is showing this woman, not just saying, I hope you are forgiven. Even that would have been challenging. But he's saying, I don't just want you to hear about the love of Christ, I want you to feel it. Can I hug her? Can I stand there in this moment? Can she feel this? And as this woman melts into his arms and starts uncontrollably sobbing, that video goes on for like another 30 seconds as she sits there and just heaves into his neck, uncontrollably crying, a couple of times he's standing there, he's like, okay, we're done, no, we're not done yet. <laughs> it is a precious moment between two human beings because 
of what Jesus has done. And that's an incredible thing. My question today is this. Are we ready to press into a deeper level of freedom and calling from the Lord today? Can we follow him into places where our flesh is beckoning for us not to go because the world says it wasn't fair? Are we willing to show the world something bigger than what it expects? I'll give you guys a couple of resources. I'm sorry I'm sniffling so much. When you get a microphone, it just makes it sound like a tornado. So we're doing it together. We're a family. <laughs> two, two resources that I think are helpful. A really awesome author named Lisa Turkhurst has written a really great book called Forgiving What You Can't Forget, all right? Uh, they've probably got a couple uh, copies in the bookstore, maybe. I didn't give them a heads up, which is on me. You can order from Amazon. It'll probably show up in your car in the parking lot. I don't know. <laughs> They're doing some stuff these days. It's pretty impressive. Uh, this woman's walked an incredible, incredible road of forgiveness and, and is doing so pretty powerfully through her writing. The other thing I would say is Carolyn Myers, who's our special needs director here at Scottsdale Bible Church, uh, just as luck would have it, uh, she wrote a blog uh, that came out last week. I read it. I immediately emailed her and was like, this is amazing. It actually references this parable but it is her personal and incredible testimony of her own journey through forgiveness with her father. And it's unbelievable. You can check it out at scottsdalebible.com forward slash blog. What I want you to hear today is what we're about to do is we're gonna move into a response time, okay? And I know everybody's in a lot of different spots, all right? When it comes to forgiveness, uh, this is a complicated road for many of us. What I want you to hear is this time is designed for those who are saying, I'm ready to do something new. I'm ready to do something different. Who are understanding that forgiveness is none of the things that we talked about. It's not permission to be wounded again. It's not saying that what happened was right. It's none of those things. Those foundations are in place. But for those who are saying, I'm simply tired of carrying the debt and I'm ready to move radically and extravagantly into releasing the debt and actually praying over this person for a full level of release that God would do something different. But I don't wanna live in hatred anymore. Anger, resentment. I wanna completely be free of this person. And that chain that we talked about gets completely free when we act fully in Christ and just like he did on the cross, go forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Release them, even bless them. But I wanna be completely free of this debt. Lord, you take them from here. And so what I wanna do right now is I wanna pray for us and then our worship team's gonna come up and lead us uh, in a pretty special time of response. So Lord, we just uh, come to you now again. Lord, we know what this means. You know the details of every one of our circumstances. You've experienced more injustice on earth than any of us ever have. So we come to you today and for those of us who are there, for those of us who are ready to step into something new and something powerful, knowing that your unbelievable ability to affect human hearts is waiting for us on the other side of some of these moments that we're, we're going to strive to have, that we may not feel like it, but that you have the ability to do the miraculous when we move in obedience. And so Lord, for those who are ready, we are gonna step with you we want to worship, we want to pray, and we want to see you start to change our realities as we move on an earthly, uh, as we move in an earthly realm to watch something transact in heaven. Lord, you say that we 
transact in the heavenly places. So Lord, my prayer today is that whatever's about to happen would be noisy in heaven, in the heavenlies, that the shackles and the chains that have been holding some of us back for so long would finally start to hit the floor and we would move into new levels of forgiveness because those who gain the most from forgiveness is us, that we are free, that we don't have to carry the weight anymore. And my prayer for those who are stuck in unforgiveness is that they would be free because you came to set captives free. This is what we wanna move towards today, Lord. We pray this in your name, amen.